Legacy Podcasts present Torque, a novel by Ty Drago, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The Tenth Cog. Ainsley waited until the house was asleep. That took a while. Even after Gerard and the servants had gone to bed, August Pinkerton stayed up, working and no doubt worrying. Finally, around two bells, she heard his heavy footsteps on the stairs, and then the sound of his bedroom door closing. Ainsley waited ten more minutes before, wearing only her nightgown, she slipped out of her room and padded quietly along the hall and down the stairs. At the bottom, she paused, listening furiously. Occasionally, the cook's staff stayed up late preparing tomorrow's menu. Not tonight, thank Jai. She tiptoed to her father's study door and found it locked. Her father usually carried the key on his person. August Pinkerton was cautious by nature, but that same caution told him that keys could be lost, and Ainsley knew where he hid the spare. Fishing it out from under the stair runner, she screwed up her courage and let herself into the forbidden room. The study was large, with a big desk of burnished bronze and an even bigger matching conference table. Bookshelves lined the walls. The area rug, on which poor Keeper Reynolds had died, covered most of the floor. Looking up, she gasped. On the rare occasions that Ainsley had been allowed in here, the glass-domed ceiling had always captivated her. But this was the first time she could recall ever seeing it at night. Stars. Millions of them. Her mother had taught her the constellations that peppered the night sky, like stories drawn in the heavens. Ainsley knew them all by heart. There was Grabber, looking fierce with its mouth open. Rat, with its pointed nose and great long tail. Wyvern, the dragon with its spread wings, long neck, and curved talons. The princess, twirling as if in dance. And Torque. The hero stood tall, outlined by a dozen tiny lights, his magical pipe in hand, a figure of both myth and reality. The Lower's champion. And yet how many lower folk had ever seen him like this, painted into the night sky? How many had ever seen the night sky at all? Jaiism preached that long ago Jai made the machine to serve a mysterious purpose. And when its work was complete, Jai then brought people to the machine to transform it and make it their home. The lower folk were meant to toil, the upper folk to rule. But deep in the bowels, a terrible presence took root, an entity who defied the goddess and sought to undermine the order of the machine. Root sent Tork to wage war on the uppers, using the upper folk engineers' own weapons against them, steam, fire, and grease. He rode the winds, was lightning quick and iron strong. No one could stop him. That is, until Jai herself put him down. All that happened a thousand years in the past, and since then Torque had become legend. Until twenty years ago, when he once again proved real. And yesterday, she had watched him die. Rousing herself, Ainsley crept around her father's desk and settled into his big chair. She worked the lamp with a trembling hand, turning its crank until a warm glow bathed the desktop as she opened the largest drawer. It was filled with ledgers. Most of their labels meant nothing to her. Her father's business empire was vast. He didn't just control the machine's only newspaper, the watch, but also the army of criers who worked in the middle dispensing the news to the illiterate lower folk. Then, just as she was about to try another drawer, Ainsley found a ledger labeled Torque. Sitting back in her father's chair, feeling treacherous, Ainsley read the bound book, cover to cover, and cried for the innocence she knew she would never get back. The next morning, after a sleepless night, Ainsley rose with a mission, one that needed to begin with a call. 
which presented her first problem. Of the two gabaphones in the house, the one in her father's study was obviously out of reach, at least during daylight hours. The other was in the butler's closet. Normally, if Ainsley wanted to call someone, she asked Emma, her maid, who would do so using the closet phone. But this call she needed to make personally, and alone. She dressed and headed downstairs, where she asked Emma to serve her breakfast in the sunroom. Then, once the maid left to obey, Ainsley headed straight to the butler's closet. More small office than closet. This was the domain of Frederick, her father's longtime butler. As such, Ainsley had never before found need to go inside. She knocked tentatively. No answer. She tried the handle. It turned. Holding her breath, Ainsley slipped inside. Cramped and windowless, the cabinet included a small secretary's desk, a swivel chair, a cork board posted with a staff schedule, and a gabaphone. Once again feeling like a thief, Ainsley lifted the earpiece and gave the crank three turns. Then she touched the right combination of numbered keys. After a few clicks, the connection was made. The other end of the line rang once, twice. A female voice said, Crowley Manor. Hello, may I please speak with Penelope? Miss Penelope isn't up yet, miss. Um, could you please get her? It's Ainsley Pinkerton. Miss Ainsley, it's Catherine, Miss Penelope's maid. Oh, I'm sorry, Catherine, I didn't recognize your voice. She could picture the woman now. Most maids of teenage upper girls were young. Catherine, however, was old enough to be Penelope's mother, a fact that Penelope often complained about. But then Penelope complained about everything. It's important. I know Penelope will think so, too. After a painful hesitation, Catherine replied, Just a minute, miss. The minute turned into three. Ainsley's stomach churned. At any moment, Frederick could come through the door. And while it certainly wasn't a crime to use a gabaphone in her own house, it would raise questions. Questions that she did not want to have to answer. Finally, a sleepy voice asked, Lo? It's me, Ainsley said quickly. I need you and Julia to meet me at the Northern Outlook. What? The Northern Outlook, Penny. It's important. What's going on? Ainsley hesitated. She'd heard rumors that sometimes the keepers listened in on gabaphone conversations. It was publicly denied, of course, but then a lot of things were. On the other hand, it might be the only thing that would lure Penelope and Julia out of bed before midday. It's Stuart, Ainsley told her friend. I think he was Torque. The 11th Cog. The Northern Overlook. Ainsley had chosen this spot deliberately because, aside from funerals, most upper folk shied away from it. After all, it was one thing to contemplate the nowhere, and quite another to look it in its face. Just after breakfast, Ainsley's father had left for the keep, where he, Commandant Gammon, and Proctor Baird would be reviewing Project Vindicator, whatever that was. Meanwhile, he'd instructed Gerard's governess to take the boy shopping and then to the park, all of which effectively granted Ainsley a day to herself. Taking a public carriage, Ainsley had arrived here to find, as she'd hoped, the outlook deserted. The wind was steady and biting, despite the heavy woolen cloak she'd worn. That was another reason folks avoided these places. Most of the uppers were warmed by the heat that was forever harvested from the lowers. But here, at one of the machine's four corners, the wind never stopped, and it was always cold. The last time she'd been here had been the day of her mother's funeral. In the uppers, the deceased were sent into the arms of Jai. Their bodies tipped ceremoniously over the lip of the machine at one of the outlooks. The reasons were both religious and a matter of necessity. The acreage atop the machine was limited, a fact which rendered interment impractical, and with wood and oil precious resources, 
the same applied to cremation. That left the nowhere. Proctor Baird had spoken at Marie Pinkerton's funeral, a heartfelt eulogy of the friend she was losing. Matron Barrett, the mother of the Cathedral of Jai and the highest-ranking member of the goddess's church, had officiated. Both had been great honors. But none of it eased Ainsley's grief as the perfectly dressed and coiffed body of her mother had been gently lifted above the railing atop an ornate silver pallet and tipped over the edge into oblivion. Ainsley had cried for days. Now, as she waited for Penelope and Julia to arrive, she stood at that same railing and gazed out beyond the limits of her world. The machine was a great four-sided structure of steel and iron extending two miles from its roof, the uppers, to its bottom in that dark and terrible place called the bowels. Its four equal sides each ran a mile from one compass point to the next, and at every corner an outlook had been established that gave a profound and somewhat frightening view of what lay beyond. The outer walls of the machine, visible only from these outlooks, were smooth, sheer gray metal, reaching down and down before finally disappearing into the nowhere. And the nowhere was clouds, an endless, billowing landscape of rolling grayness extending to the limits of sight. At no time in recorded history had those clouds thinned, much less dissipated. The clouds, like the machine they surrounded, were eternal. Jaiism taught that the clouds were the cradle upon which the goddess rested her machine. Ainsley, however, had her other theories, whispers that there might be more down there. Ground. Over the centuries, a few intrepid upper folk had tried to find out. Expeditions were mounted. While the keep had neither sanctioned nor condemned these efforts, the Jaiists called them heresy, a claim bolstered by the fact that no expedition ever returned. The last had ventured out before Ainsley was born. A group of like-minded engineers constructed a flying device, basically a carriage with wings. One morning, in front of a large crowd, they'd heroically launched themselves from this very outlook, soaring out and down, disappearing beneath the clouds, never to be seen again. Since then, no one else had tried it. Ainsley called a voice. She turned as Penelope and Julia approached. Both were dressed for the middle market, as Ainsley had asked. Julia was practically skipping, her eyes bright with excitement. Penelope looked put out. They'd been Ainsley's closest friends forever. Like her own, their father was an upper lord, if perhaps not quite as affluent. Robert Crowley's engineering concerns maintained the market lifts, making him both successful and respected. Thanks for coming, Ainsley told the girls. I skipped breakfast, Penelope replied sourly. Me too, Julia added, grinning. Ainsley said, I wouldn't have called if it wasn't important. Making your own calls, Penelope remarked. What would your father say? Then she softened and asked, Stuart? Ainsley nodded. Julia's eyes sparkled. Do you really think he's Torque? Was Torque? Ainsley shared with them last night's burglary and what she gleaned from it. Julia looked horrified. Your father would pitch a fit if he found out you did that. I know, Ainsley replied. So your father invented Torque? Penelope said thoughtfully. No, he just brought the legend to life, recruiting different upper men to play the part. But why? To put on a good show, Julia suggested. Torque always did that. Ainsley replied, to give the lower folk a champion, someone to root for. Penelope frowned. Your family has always had an unhealthy interest in the Bowels Rats. So you're not curious at all about the people who fill the lower half of the machine? They do their work. Penelope replied. What more do I need to know? How about why? Ainsley demanded. 
Why do we live the way we do and they live the way they do? Because Jai wills it, said Penelope impatiently. An uncomfortable silence ensued. Finally, Julia chimed in. But why'd Stuart do it? Was it before he broke off your engagement? Penelope snapped. Be quiet! But Julia pressed on as if struck by inspiration. Do you think that's why he ended it? Because he was about to become Torque? Julia! her sister exclaimed. It's all right, Ainsley said. But the ledger didn't mention motive. I don't know when Stuart made the decision or if ending our engagement played a part in it. Then she drew a steadying breath and added, What I do know is that I want to find out what it all means. What what all means? Julia asked. Torque, the lowers, my father's plan. I want to understand the machine and how it all fits together. I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. But I woke up this morning convinced it's what I have to do. I've lived my entire life taking everything around me for granted, questioning nothing about it, not its justice or its truth. Justice and truth, Penelope echoed. What's the point? You'll only end up getting hurt. Maybe, Ainsley admitted. Look, her friend said, taking Ainsley's hand with uncharacteristic compassion. I'm sorry Stuart left you, but if he really was Torque, then he's gone. And no half-baked crusade is going to change that. Then, after a pause, she added carefully, Your mother found that out. Ainsley colored. My mother died of fever, she exclaimed, yanking her hand back. If she hadn't, who knows what might have happened. She wanted to make some real changes. Who's to say she wouldn't have? One person can't change the world. Ainsley turned her back, looking out over the nowhere. It was still early morning, and the sun hung low above the vast tapestry of gray clouds. The machine, her home, her world. She'd been learning about it her whole life, and yet she knew nothing. I'm going to the middle market today, she said. Fun, Julia replied, brightening. What for? Penelope asked. To start my crusade, and I'd like you both to come with me. Sure, exclaimed Julia. Penny, Ainsley pressed. No, Penelope replied darkly. It's stupid. Then it's my stupid. Well, I want nothing to do with it. Her sister chirped. I do. No, you don't. It's all right, Penny, Ainsley said. I'll keep her out of trouble. Penelope scoffed, but offered no more argument. And that was that. The market plaza was located at the center of the uppers, right on the edge of the drop, an open expanse of steel and iron. It's where upper folk gathered to hear speeches or participate in community events. Other times, people came, children mostly, to stand at the railing and gaze into the vast emptiness of the drop. No one really knew what the drop was for. The lifts that carried people down to the middle were modern additions to the huge rectangular shaft that occupied the machine's exact center and ran its entire height. The upper folk dumped their garbage into it, and in the lowers, Ainsley had heard the dead were also cast into the drop to feed the rats. Ainsley shuddered at the thought. But beyond that, if the drop had ever served a real purpose, it remained elusive. The plaza had crowded by the time Ainsley and Julia arrived. Amidst towering white spires and streets that glistened with precious metals, upper folk busied themselves. All were fed and most were successful, clinging to the government's long-held motto that productivity is prosperity. Those very words were etched into the gleaming frontage of Government Hall, where the proctor and parliament made the laws that the keepers enforced. On their way here in a hired carriage, they passed right by that gleaming edifice, which was situated away from the drop and on the far side of Grand Park. Beside it stood the keep, larger, darker, and infinitely more imposing. 
But unlike Government Hall, the keep was more than a collection of courtrooms and offices. It was also a prison. There was a bad joke that the only way lower folk could reach the uppers was in chains and bound for the keep's windowless dungeon. Once there, either the convicted offender lived out their remaining days in darkness, or they were hanged in the sunshine. A broken system, her father privately called it. We've forgotten the meaning of law and order. Her father. As per custom, the Pinkerton estate stood in the shadow of the source of its prosperity, the towering watch building. As the machine's only newspaper, the twice-daily watch covered everything from politics to gossip. It was easily the largest consumer of the paper farmed and produced by the mills down in the middle, which her father also owned. The watch took the pulse of public opinion as well as set its beat. Everyone read it. Everyone talked about it. It's a tool, her father once told her, as much a peacekeeping agent as any of Gammon's uniformed thugs. It's a responsibility. To tell the truth, Ainsley remembered asking. Yes, August Pinkerton replied, but also to make it. She and Julia climbed the lift platform steps and presented themselves to the keepers who monitored the traffic going to and from the middle. Ainsley Pinkerton and Julia Crowley for the market, Ainsley said. Do you have an escort? The keeper asked her. We don't need one. Sorry, miss. New regulation. Without a male escort, a keeper must accompany you. Ainsley scowled. We don't want it. Ignoring her, the uniformed man snapped his fingers at a second, younger keeper, who immediately jumped to his side. This is Keeper Percy. Percy, you're to escort Miss Pinkerton and Miss Crowley and not let them out of your sight. Make sure you return before four bells this afternoon. Understood? Keeper Percy saluted smartly. Yes, sir. Then the young man faced Ainsley and Julia and offered a ridiculous bow. This way, ladies. Julia enjoyed the attention. Ainsley fumed. Wordlessly, she let Percy usher them both into the lift, where the three of them began their journey down to the middle for the second time in two days. But not to shop. Not this time. The Twelfth Cog Throughout their fifteen-minute ride down to the middle, Julia stood at the windows and ogled the drably mysterious drop as though she hadn't just seen it yesterday, while Keeper Percy stood nearby at ridiculous attention. For her part, Ainsley occupied one of the lift car's plush benches, thinking furiously. She needed to get rid of their escort. This trip was the first step of her newly realized quest. As such, she had questions, lots of them, which meant finding the right folk to ask. Lower folk. Something Percy would never permit. Fortunately, by the time the lift car neared the bottom of its descent, Ainsley had a plan. Standing, she huddled beside Julia at the window, their heads close together, and communicated that plan in low whispers. By the time they reached the market lift platform, her friend was on board, or at least Ainsley hoped she was. The three of them departed the lift. The market, with its maze of shops and tented boutiques, filled nearly half the middle, extending from one side of the drop to the very limits of the machine. Its wares ranged from foods and furniture, to clothes, shoes, and jewelry, all factory-made and government-sanctioned. There were shops in the uppers, run by upper folk, but their selections tended to be limited and their prices high. Not surprising, since almost everything was produced in the middle factories. The upper folk shopkeepers simply came down here, bought their merchandise from their lower folk counterparts, brought it back up, and sold it at a premium, targeting those clientele who couldn't be bothered with making the round trip on the lifts. Julia gazed at the monstrous factories across the drop. Is it true those are just enormous boxes of gears? They used to be, Ainsley replied. 
But what happened to the gears and stuff inside them? Melted down and used for raw materials to build the uppers. So were parts of the machine above the middle. That's why there aren't any levels between us and home, the way there are in the lowers. Everything we have, our houses, streets, schools, churches, it's all just recycled steel and iron scavenged from elsewhere in the machine. But what about the shiny stuff? Julia asked, the gold and silver. Don't you listen in history class? Boring. Despite everything, Ainsley laughed. They're recycled too. Most of the more sophisticated gearboxes had small parts made at least partially from precious metals. They were melted down and the gold and silver extracted. Oh, Julia remarked. But what did they do? What did what do? Julia pointed at the hulking factories. The factory gearboxes. What were they originally for? Nobody knows. Jai knows, Keeper Percy said. Julia smiled coquettishly at him. Then she asked, Are the lowers really made completely out of gearboxes like those? Smaller, Ainsley said, but yes. How do they live like that, without windows or light? I don't know, replied Ainsley. And she didn't. The very idea of spending one's entire life in rusty darkness, wandering among the ruins of ancient devices, eking out whatever existence one could, challenged her imagination. You shouldn't talk about such things, Keeper Percy admonished. Julia quieted, but Ainsley didn't. Why not? The machine is what it is, the young man said, resetting a common upper's axiom. If Jai wanted things to be different, then they would be different. One shouldn't question the natural order. Ainsley almost said, Torque did, but she caught herself. There was another axiom she picked up somewhere. A lower's axiom. The lowers make, the uppers take. The middle market seemed proof of that. All of its hundreds of shops were run by lower folk tradesmen, who stocked goods manufactured by lower folk factory workers and sold them almost exclusively to upper folk. Lower folk rarely had the coin to shop here. Ainsley had heard that most tradesmen couldn't afford to buy their own wares. There were rumors of another market, a black market, somewhere deep below this one, an illegal place. There, lower folk could barter for anything, including illicit medicines and even bits of magic. There were said to be witches there, root-worshipping heathens, who created love potions and healing spells for lower folk who couldn't afford physician services. Keeper Percy said, We've received reports that many of the shops are closed today. I should apologize for the inconvenience. This shutdown is unauthorized. They're in mourning, Ainsley told him. He didn't reply. Come on, Julia, she said. I'm looking for undergarments, slips and bodices mostly. You are? But didn't we just last week? Ainsley glared at her friend until realization dawned. Meanwhile, she noticed Keeper Percy begin to shift uncomfortably, his cheeks darkening. Inwardly, she smiled. The three of them stepped down into the middle market. Ainsley could immediately tell that this would be a quiet day. The crowd was unusually thin. With some of the stores closed in remembrance of Torque, the upper folk shoppers had, for the most part, stayed home, except for those like Julia, who were too self-involved to empathize. And me, she thought. I'm going to see what they've got in here, Ainsley said, motioning to a nearby large dresser's tent. Why don't you check out Mr. Washburn's shop down at the end of the row? Julia, playing along, feigned nervousness. Alone? Of course not, Ainsley replied. Keeper Percy can go with you. Percy barked. Miss Pinkerton, we all have to stay together. Ainsley gave him her best entitled upper lady stare. Young man, she said, though in truth he had to be a few years older than she was. There's hardly anybody here today. 
Now, I'm going to spend the next hour under that tent, working with the tradeswoman, trying on undergarments. Do you intend to watch me do it? His face reddened. No, miss. Then I'll be out of your sight anyway, won't I? Well, yes, but my friend's on the lookout for a pair of shoes. Isn't that right, Julia? The girl grinned broadly. Oh, yes, absolutely yes. Quit overselling it, Ainsley thought. To Percy, she said, Why don't you stick with her while she browses? Give me one hour. I won't leave the shop until you both get back. She watched the keeper search for an argument. Before he could find one, she announced, It's settled then. Turned and marched into the dresser's tent, her heart in her throat. No footfalls dogged her. They weren't following. She let out the breath she'd been holding. As she did, the shopkeeper, a poised but tired-looking lower woman, approached, her simple sandals clapping against the middle floor. It occurred to Ainsley that tradespeople never looked quite comfortable in footwear. By law, they were the only class of lower folk permitted shoes, but most of them didn't seem to like wearing them. "'How can I help you, miss?' the woman asked. Ainsley replied, "'You can point me to the shop's rear exit, if you don't mind.' "'Miss, there's someone I need to avoid.' The woman's expression flashed an alarm. A keeper? No, a boy, Ainsley corrected, going for girlish discomfort. That sort of thing wasn't uncommon in the market, a large public place where upper children from disapproving families could rendezvous in secret. The tradeswoman relaxed. Oh, of course, miss, I can. Follow me. She led Ainsley through several rows of wares on long-poled display racks. At the rear of the tent was a modest office, and beyond that, a slit that opened onto the next aisle of shops. Ainsley said, Thanks, but first, can I ask, and I hope this doesn't sound too awful, did you know the lower boy who died yesterday? Then, after some debate, she added, With torque? The woman winced, as if the word alone had wounded her. I shouldn't discuss such things, she replied. Ainsley took a silver coin from her purse and placed it in the woman's hands. I'm a journalist. A journalist? A crier's mate, Ainsley corrected, using the term for someone who supplied the news that, in turn, the criers cried. Oh, the woman pocketed the coin. You mean Rand Roberts, a bowels rat, but as good a lud as I've ever known. Made it his business to help keep the lowers safe from the stainers. Stainers? She nodded. The marked ones. Ainsley finally got it. The woman meant the gangs. It was like they spoke two different languages. The tradeswoman said, Losing Rand made yesterday doubly sad. You've probably noticed how many of the market shops are closed. Well, most of those are for Torque, yeah, but some are for Rand, too. Honestly, I'd be among them, for all that is against the law if it weren't for my debt. I can't afford not to open up. Ainsley absorbed this. Then she asked, What about Rand's friends, twin boys and a red-headed girl? Do you know them? The woman's brows knitted. They've done nothing wrong. I know, Ainsley assured her. I just want to talk to them about Rand, for the criers. Then, when the woman's expression further hardened, she dropped another silver in her palm, adding, To help with your debt. The lower woman pocketed the coin. It's Lucy Stamper and the Yanceys you're after. Lucy's heartbroken, I'm sure, though I haven't seen her since it happened. But the Yancey twins are around today. There's a sweet meat shop two rows over. You might find them there. Thank you. Ainsley said. She slipped through the tent slit and hurried around the first corner. The twins weren't hard to spot, small and thin with matching mops of stringy brown hair. As the tradeswoman had suggested, they were eyeing up a corner sweetmeat shop, peering at it from around a nearby water cistern. 
Ainsley watched them, noting the way their eyes never left the shop's assortment of soft candies. She tried to remember the last time she'd stared at food, any food, with that much desperate longing. The tradesman hadn't noticed them. He was going about his business, keeping his counter clean, scanning the row for non-existent customers. When he turned away to attend to something at the back of the shop, the twins made their move. One ran up to the shop's frontage, laughed, and threw something, it looked like a dead rat, at the back of the merchant's head. Then, as the man turned to curse the fleeing child, the boy's brother dashed in on his blind side and scooped up a handful of sweetmeats. At the sight of it, Ainsley laughed. She couldn't help it. But in doing so, she alerted the tradesman, who spotted the second boy and instantly clamped a hand around his wrist. Got you! Let me go! the boy exclaimed. As soon as the keepers get here, the merchant growled. Then he reached over and rang a bell. The same bell that all of the market vendors had. It tolled loudly and repeatedly. A call for help. Ainsley hurried forward and dropped a copper on the counter. For the sweetmeats. Stay out of this, miss, the man replied, his attention fixed on the boy, whose eyes had gone glassy with terror. I'm paying for what he took. I don't want your coin. This ludling robbed me too often. It's time the little bowels rat learned a thing or two. Ainsley heard a gasp and turned to see the other Yancey boy standing nearby, watching in helpless horror as the tradesman continued to ring the bell. Wait, Ainsley said to the shopkeeper. Please. He ignored her. Then he noticed the other boy, his scowl deepening. Twins! I should have guessed! He faced the boy in his grip. You're going to keep. Then he turned to the boy's brother. And you get to know he's there and that you'll never see him again. Unless, that is, you'd care to stay close until the keepers come. Then they can take you both. Ainsley had never broken a law in her life. Until this moment, she'd always assumed that was because she was a good person, raised right, as her father might say. But in that moment, and for the first time, she bitterly grasped that her so-called goodness came, at least to some degree, from the fact that she'd never needed to be anything else. Until now. She hit the tradesman across the face with a coin purse. The blow took him completely off guard, and, more from shock than pain, his grip on the child's wrist slackened. Squirming free, the antsy boy joined his brother, and the two of them broke into a run. Ainsley followed, flushed and breathless, while behind her, the merchant recovered and resumed ringing his bell, this time all the harder. Find out what's next for Ainsley and the Twins in Episode 5 of Torque by Ty Drago. Or, if you can't bear the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening.